Chapter 9, Part 1 of The Fifteen Decisive Battles of the World. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ramon Escamilla. Conway, Arkansas. The Fifteen Decisive Battles of the World by Sir Edward Shepherd Creasy. Chapter 9. Part 1. Joan of Arc's Victory Over the English at Orléans, A.D. 1429. Quote, the eyes of all Europe were turned toward this scene, where, it was reasonably supposed, the French were to make their last stand for maintaining the independence of their monarchy and the rights of their sovereign. End quote. Hume. When, after their victory at Salamis, the generals of the various Greek states voted the prizes for distinguished individual merit, each assigned the first place of excellence to himself, but they all concurred in giving their second votes to Themistocles. Plutarch, Vita Themistocles, 17. This was looked on as a decisive proof that Themistocles ought to be ranked first of all. If we were to endeavor, by a similar test, to ascertain which European nation has contributed the most to the progress of European civilization, we should find Italy, Germany, England, and Spain, each claiming the first degree, but each also naming France as clearly next in merit. It is impossible to deny her paramount importance in history. Besides the formidable part that she has for nearly three centuries played as the Bellona of the European Commonwealth of States, her influence during all this period over the arts, the literature, the manners, and the feelings of mankind has been such as to make the crisis of her earlier fortunes a point of worldwide interest, and it may be asserted without exaggeration that the future career of every nation was involved in the result of the struggle by which the unconscious heroine of France, in the beginning of the fifteenth century, rescued her country from becoming a second Ireland under the yoke of the triumphant English. Seldom has the extinction of a nation's independence appeared more inevitable than was the case in France, when the English invaders completed their lines around Orléans, 423 years ago. A series of dreadful defeats had thinned the chivalry of France, and daunted the spirits of her soldiers. A foreign king had been proclaimed in her capital, and foreign armies of the bravest veterans, and led by the ablest captains then known in the world, occupied the fairest portions of her territory. Worse to her even than the fierceness and the strength of her foes were the factions, the vices, and the crimes of her own children. Her native prince was a dissolute trifler, stained with the assassination of the most powerful noble of the land, whose son, in revenge, had leagued himself with the enemy. Many more of her nobility, many of her prelates, her magistrates and rulers, had sworn fealty to the English king. The condition of the peasantry amid the general prevalence of anarchy and brigandage, which were added to the customary devastations of contending armies, was wretched beyond the power of language to describe. The sense of terror and suffering seemed to have extended itself even to the brute creation. Quote, In sooth, the estate of France was then most miserable. There appeared nothing but a horrible face, confusion, poverty, desolation, solitariness and fear. 
The lean and bare laborers in the country did terrify even thieves themselves, who had nothing left them to spoil but the carcasses of these poor miserable creatures, wandering up and down like ghosts drawn out of their graves. The least farms and hamlets were fortified by these robbers, English, Bourguignon, and French, every one striving to do his worst. All men of war were well agreed to spoil the countryman and the merchant. Even the cattle, accustomed to the larum bell, the sign of the enemy's approach, would run home of themselves without any guide by this accustomed misery. Dessert, quoted in the notes to Southey's Joan of Arc. In the autumn of 1428, the English, who were already masters of all France, north of the Loire, prepared their forces for the conquest of the southern provinces, which yet adhered to the cause of the Dauphin. The city of Orléans, on the banks of that river, was looked upon as the last stronghold of the French national party. If the English could once obtain possession of it, their victorious progress through the residue of the kingdom seemed free from any serious obstacle. Accordingly, the Earl of Salisbury, one of the bravest and most experienced of the English generals, who had been trained under Henry V, marched to the attack of the all-important city, and, after reducing several places of inferior consequence in the neighborhood, appeared with his army before its walls on the 12th of October, 1428. The city of Orléans itself was on the north side of the Loire, but its suburbs extended far on the southern side, and a strong bridge connected them with the town. A fortification, which in modern military phrase would be termed a tête du pont, defended the bridgehead on the southern side, and two towers, called the Tourelles, were built on the bridge itself, where it rested on an island at a little distance from the tête du pont. Indeed, the solid masonry of the bridge terminated at the Tourelles, and the communication thence with the tête du pont on the southern shore was by means of a drawbridge. The Tourelles and the Tête du Pont formed together a strong fortified post, capable of containing a garrison of considerable strength. And so long as this was in possession of the Orléanais, they could communicate freely with the southern provinces, the inhabitants of which, like the Orléanais themselves, supported the cause of their Dauphin against the foreigners. Lord Salisbury rightly judged the capture of the Tourelles to be the most material step toward the reduction of the city itself. Accordingly, he directed his principal operations against this post, and after some severe repulses, he carried the Tourelle by storm, on the 23rd of October. The French, however, broke down part of the bridge which was nearest to the north bank, and thus rendered a direct assault from the Tourelle upon the city impossible. But the possession of this post enabled the English to distress the town greatly by a battery of cannon which they planted there, and which commanded some of the principal streets. It has been observed by Hume that this is the first siege in which any important use appears to have been made of artillery, and even at Orléans both besiegers and besieged seem to have employed their cannons more as instruments of destruction against their enemy's men than as engines of demolition against their enemy's walls and works. The efficacy of cannon in breaching solid masonry was taught Europe by the Turks, a few years afterwards, at the memorable siege of Constantinople. In our French wars, as in the wars of the classic nations, famine was looked on as the surest weapon to compel the submission of a well-walled town, and the great object of the besiegers was to effect a complete circumvallation. The great ambit of the walls of Orléans, 
and the facilities which the river gave for obtaining succor and supplies rendered the capture of the place by this process a matter of great difficulty. Nevertheless, Lord Salisbury and Lord Suffolk, who succeeded him in command of the English after his death by a cannonball, carried on the necessary works with great skill and resolution. Six strongly fortified posts, called Bastilos, were formed at certain intervals round the town, and the purpose of the English engineers was to draw strong lines between them. During the winter little progress was made with the entrenchments, but when the spring of 1429 came, the English resumed their works with activity. The communications between the city and the country became more difficult, and the approach of want began already to be felt in Orléans. The besieging force also fared hardly for stores and provisions, until relieved by the effects of a brilliant victory which Sir John Fastolf, one of the best English generals, gained at Rouvray, near Orléans, a few days after Ash Wednesday, 1429. With only sixteen hundred fighting men, Sir John completely defeated an army of French and Scots, four thousand strong, which had been collected for the purpose of aiding the Orléanais and harassing the besiegers. After this encounter, which seemed decisively to confirm the superiority of the English in battle over their adversaries, Fastolf escorted large supplies of stores and food to Suffolk's camp, and the spirits of the English rose to the highest pitch at the prospect of the speedy capture of the city before them, and the consequent subjection of all France beneath their arms. The Orléanais, now in their distress, offered to surrender the city into the hands of the Duke of Burgundy, who, though the ally of the English, was yet one of their native princes. The regent Bedford refused these terms, and the speedy submission of the city to the English seemed inevitable. The Dauphin Charles, who was now at Chinon with his remnant of a court, despaired of maintaining any longer the struggle for his crown, and was only prevented from abandoning the country by the more masculine spirits of his mistress and his queen. Yet neither they, nor the boldest of Charles' captains, could have shown him where to find resources for prolonging the war, and least of all could any human skill have predicted the quarter whence rescue was to come to Orléans and to France. In the village of Donremy, on the borders of Lorraine, there was a poor peasant of the name of Jacques d'Arc, respected in his station of life, and who had reared a family in virtuous habits and in the practice of the strictest devotion. His eldest daughter was named by her parents Jeannette, but she was called Jeanne by the French, which was Latinized into Johanna and anglicized into Joan. Quote, Respondit quod in partibus suis vocabatur Johanneta, et postquam venit in Franciam vocata est Johanna. Process de Jeanne d'Arc, volume 1, page 46. At the time when Joan first attracted attention, she was about eighteen years of age. She was naturally of a susceptible disposition, which diligent attention to the legends of saints and tales of fairies, aided by the dreamy loneliness of her life while tending her father's flocks, had made peculiarly prone to enthusiastic fervor. At the same time, she was eminent for piety and purity of soul, and for her compassionate gentleness to the sick and the distressed. Southey, in one of the speeches which he puts in the mouth of his Joan of Arc, has made her beautifully describe the effect, on her mind, of the scenery in which she dwelt. Quote, Here in solitude and peace, my soul was nursed amid the loveliest scenes, of unpolluted nature, sweet it was, as the white mists of morning rolled away. 
to see the mountain's wooded heights appear dark in the early dawn and mark its slope with gorse flowers glowing as the rising sun on the golden ripeness poured a deepening light pleasant at noon beside the vocal brook to lay me down and watch the floating clouds and shape to fancy's wild similitudes their ever-varying forms and oh how sweet to drive my flock at evening to the fold and hasten to our little hut and hear the voice of kindness bid me welcome home End quote. the only foundation for the story told by the burgundian partisan monstrelet and adopted by hume of joan having been brought up as servant at an inn is the circumstance of her having been once with the rest of her family obliged to take refuge in an auberge in neuf chateau for fifteen days when a party of burgundian cavalry made an incursion into Domremy. see the quarterly review number one thirty eight the district where she dwelt had escaped comparatively free from the ravages of war but the approach of roving bands of burgundian or english troops frequently spread terror through Domremy. once the village had been plundered by some of these marauders and joan and her family had been driven from their home and forced to seek refuge for a time at neuf chateau the peasantry in Domremy were principally attached to the house of orleans and the dauphin and all the miseries which france endured were there imputed to the burgundian faction and their allies the english who were seeking to enslave unhappy france thus from infancy to girlhood joan had heard continually of the woes of the war and she had herself witnessed some of the wretchedness that it caused a feeling of intense patriotism grew in her with her growth the deliverance of france from the english was the subject of her reveries by day and her dreams by night blended with these aspirations were recollections of the miraculous interpositions of heaven in favor of the oppressed which she had learned from the legends of her church her faith was undoubting her prayers were fervent she feared no danger for she felt no sin and at length she believed herself to have received the supernatural inspiration which she sought according to her own narrative delivered by her to her merciless inquisitors in the time of her captivity and approaching death she was about thirteen years old when her revelations commenced her own words describe them best Process de jean d'arc volume one page fifty two at the age of thirteen a voice from god came near to her to help her in ruling herself and that voice came to her about the hour of noon in summer-time while she was in her father's garden and she had fasted the day before and she heard the voice on her right in the direction of the church and when she heard the voice she also saw a bright light afterwards saint michael and saint margaret and saint catherine appeared to her they were always in a halo of glory she could see that their heads were crowned with jewels and she heard their voices which were sweet and mild she did not distinguish their arms or limbs she heard them more frequently than she saw them and the usual time when she heard them was when the church bells were sounding for prayer and if she was in the woods when she heard them she could plainly distinguish their voices drawing near to her when she thought that she discerned the heavenly voices she knelt down and bowed herself to the ground their presence gladdened her even to tears and after they departed she wept because they had not taken her with them back to paradise they always spoke soothingly to her they told her that france would be saved and that she was to save it End quote. 
such were the visions and the voices that moved the spirit of the girl of thirteen and as she grew older they became more frequent and more clear at last the tidings of the siege of orleans reached Domremy. joan heard her parents and neighbors talk of the sufferings of its population of the ruin which its capture would bring on their lawful sovereign and of the distress of the dauphin and his court joan's heart was sorely troubled at the thought of the fate of orleans and her voices now ordered her to leave her home and warned her that she was the instrument chosen by heaven for driving away the english from that city and for taking the dauphin to be anointed king at reims at length she informed her parents of her divine mission and told them that she must go to the sire de baudricourt who commanded at vaucouleurs and who was the appointed person to bring her into the presence of the king whom she was to save neither the anger nor the grief of her parents who said that they would rather see her drowned than exposed to the contamination of the camp could move her from her purpose one of her uncles consented to take her to vaucouleurs where de baudricourt at first thought her mad and derided her but by degrees was led to believe if not in her inspiration at least in her enthusiasm and in its possible utility to the dauphin's case the inhabitants of vaucouleurs were completely won over to her side by the piety and devoutness which she displayed and by her firm assurance in the truth of her mission she told them that it was god's will that she should go to the king and that no one but her could save the kingdom of france she said that she herself would rather remain with her poor mother and spin but the lord had ordered her forth the fame of the maid as she was termed the renown of her holiness and of her mission spread far and wide baudricourt sent her with an escort to chinon where the dauphin charles was dallying away his time her voices had bidden her assume the arms and the apparel of a knight and the wealthiest inhabitants of vaucouleurs had vied with each other in equipping her with war-horse armor and sword on reaching chinon she was after some delay admitted into the presence of the dauphin charles designedly dressed himself far less richly than many of his courtiers were apparelled and mingled with them when joan was introduced in order to see if the holy maid would address her exhortations to the wrong person but she instantly singled him out and kneeling before him said most noble dauphin the king of heaven announces to you by me that you shall be anointed and crowned king in the city of reims and that you shall be his vice-regent in france his features may probably have been seen by her previously in portraits or have been described to her by others but she herself believed that her voices inspired her when she addressed the king Process de jean d'arc volume one page fifty six and the report soon spread abroad that the holy maid had found the king by a miracle and this with many other similar rumors augmented the renown and influence that she now rapidly acquired end of chapter nine part one recording by ramon escamilla conway arkansas r a m o n e s c a m i l l a dot wordpress dot com